Radical Personal Finance, Episode 24. On today's show, a new Harvard paper on where people are the happiest and why that might be, rankings of the most in-demand jobs and the states with the most jobs, the myth of economic patriotism, habits of the wealthiest people, a Roth IRA horse race, and unlimited reading on your Amazon Kindle for $10 a month. Welcome to the Radical Personal Finance Podcast for today, Monday, July 21, 2014. Thank you for being here. And today's show is going to be a bit of a variety show. Instead of my talking on for an hour about one topic, we're going to try to cover about 10. Probably in about an hour, but we'll see. <laughs> I don't, I'm not known for being able to do hour-long shows. I hope you'll enjoy us today and stay with us. So with it being a beautiful new Monday today, I've got a listing of all of some of the articles that I have found over the past week. And as I've mentioned before, what I hope to do with the show is really bring a variety. And so in my mind, I, although I do enjoy in-depth financial planning topics, man, I can't handle that stuff every day. I would go nuts if I had to talk about tax planning and uh, what was the one show I did last week on balance sheet, statement of financial condition. I would go nuts if I had to talk about that all day long. I don't enjoy it that much. I mean, I like it, but one or two days a week is great. And interviewing people is awesome, but I tell you, it takes a lot of time to prepare for an interview to do it well. And so uh, and answering questions is great, but I don't want to do that every day. So in my mind, what I think would work really well for this show is what the, the routine that I'd like to get into is Mondays kind of do a variety show with various articles that are in the news, current commentary on news events, economic events, economic goings-on, Things like that. Tuesdays, you know, something like Tuesday, Wednesday, and Thursday, do a couple of interviews, one or two interviews with somebody, and then the other day do a an in-depth financial planning educational show, and then Fridays do listener Q and A. So that's kind of the uh, that's the plan that's in my head. So Monday today we're going to talk about a number of interesting uh, interesting topics, and some basically this is from uh, some of my reading from the last week, some of the different articles that caught my eye, and some of the different topics that I am interested in researching a little bit. We're going to lead off by talking about happiness. And uh, as maybe you've picked up by now, I personally think that we should spend a lot more time focusing on things like happiness and contentment than just simply on the dollar figures. But yet dollar figures have a, an impact on happiness, clearly. Uh, so how do these work together? Well, let's start with a, a, a article here from MarketWatch, and this is from July 18, 2014. All of the articles will be linked in the show notes. Feel free to check through. So headline, this is from MarketWatch. New York City is the most unhappy city in America. All you New Yorkers might be a little bit upset with me right now, but let's read it. Cheer up, Big Apple residents. New York City is the most unhappy city in America. That's according to data coming from a working paper by Harvard professor Edward Glazer, Vancouver School of Economics professor Joshua Gottlieb, and Harvard doctoral student Oren Zeev. They use data collected in a Centers for Disease Control and Prevention survey called the Behavioral Risk Factor Surveillance System and then adjusted it for age, sex, race, income, and other factors. Such adjustments are important. Women, for instance, are happier than men. The married are happier than single or divorced respondents and so on. By the way, don't rush past that. Women are happier than men. 
Married people are happier than single or divorced people. And there's good evidence for that as well. So as to why, we'll talk about that in a minute. In short, New Yorkers are unhappiest on an adjusted basis. But scoff at those adjustments if, as you like. They are still third most unhappy region of the areas where there are at least 200 respondents out of 177 metro areas on an un- unadjusted basis. It'd be blithe to say those who work on Wall Street are scientifically miserable. But remember, money buys happiness. So probably not. The fi- happiest five cities are all in Louisiana, with Lafayette taking the crown. Louisiana is also the happiest state. The unhappiest cities after New York City are St. Joseph, Missouri, South Bend, Indiana, Erie, Pennsylvania, and the Evansville, Indiana, Henderson, Kentucky area. So I thought this was an interesting article. And uh, I personally would (laughs) – I would not have any interest in living in New York City. I can see why people might be unhappy there, but I think it's a fun place to visit. But, hey, I say go for it. So I went and found the actual study, and the actual study is more interesting than the news article. It's a nice sensationalistic – a nice sensational news article for the you know for Market Watch to post three paragraphs on, but the study was actually extremely interesting, and so you'll find it linked in the you'll find it linked in the show notes. It's right available as a PDF on the Harvard.edu website, and I'm going to read from the abstract up front, and then also from the conclusion. So this is only a 30-page study plus appendices, and so it's entitled "Unhappy Cities" in the abstract. There are persistent differences in self-reported subjective well-being across the United States. And in particular, the residents of declining cities report less happiness than other Americans. Although this unhappiness is at least as strong among new residents of such places as long-term residents, some people continue to move to these areas. These areas also seem to have been less happy historically during the era in which these now-declining cities prospered. These patterns are compatible with the view that individuals do not aim to maximize self-reported well-being or happiness, and that subjective well-being is better viewed as only one part of the utility function. In the past, the residents of now-declining places were compensated financially for their unhappiness, but it is less clear what draws migrants to these unhappy places today. So when I read this through this study, and again, it's pretty short, it's only about 30 pages, pretty easy to read, although it does put a bunch of uh, interesting very uh, equations in here to, to prove their point with the statistics of the adjustments that they made. But when I read this, it was very interesting just to kind of look through the thinking of it and to see some of the to see some of the differences in thinking and some of the different theories that these psychology researchers have as far as w- what may be responsible for uh, these effects. And I'll read the conclusion here, but. In general, the conclusion of the paper was that we don't quite know. And I'm fascinated by happiness literature, uh, by some of the books that have been written. I think, to me, this is a far more important goal that should be right at the top of our uh, financial planning goals and agenda beyond just maximizing financial or material wealth. It should be maximizing happiness. And some of the strategies that we employ to reach that point uh, may include you know, financial wealth, and some of them may not. But it just seems like a far more rational, rational strategy. So they go through and give some of the different ideas about uh, about the the attributes, whether it's income level. But one thing that they do point out in here that I think was the most interesting to me is talking about how we generally are going to be compensated for a lower happiness factor. So they report that in New York City, as would be intuitive, that in New York City the wages are higher. 
but the level of happiness is down. And so one of the hypotheses that they explore is, is it true that people have to be compensated for their their happiness, for their diminished happiness? And I think this, to me, this strikes me as intuitively true, that if you're going to do a job that is miserable, you might as well get paid a lot for it. Uh, and you wouldn't be willing if you had two jobs, one was miserable and one was happy, and they offered the same price, they offered the same market price, then it would be very important. I mean, I would just assume most people would go with a job that would make them happy. So where is that trade-off, however? How much ha- unhappiness are you willing to take for the additional wages? Or how much additional wage do you demand for the unhappiness that you're going to experience? So I encourage you to read the check out the study. I think you'd enjoy it. Let me just read the conclusion here, uh, because I think this conclusion is also is also valuable. In this paper, we have documented significant differences in self-reported well-being across American cities that persist, even when we control for endogenous and exogenous demographics. So endogenous coming from within, exogenous coming from without, uh, without the system. And even when we control for individual fixed effects. These facts are not reliably correlated with many area-level attributes, but they do seem to be connected with urban decline across at least three large data sets. We do not interpret this correlation as a suggestion that population decline causes unhappiness. Indeed, cities that have declined also seem to have been unhappy in the past, which suggests that a better interpretation might be these areas were always unhappy, and that was one reason why they declined. Differences in happiness and subjective well-being across space weakly support the view that the desire for happiness and life satisfaction do not uniquely drive human ambitions. If we choose only that which maximizes our happiness, then individuals would presumably move to happier places until the point where rising rents and congestion eliminated the joys of that locale. An alternative view is that humans are quite understandably willing to sacrifice both happiness and life satisfaction if the price is right. This viewpoint rationalizes the well-known tendency of parents to report lower levels of happiness and life satisfaction. And the, uh, inserting a point there, they talk about that earlier in the study, that evidently young parents of young children and parents report lower satisfaction and happiness than do, than do married people without children. However... That seems to be offset by the advantages of having progeny, being able to continue your, your, your lineage and some of the other advantages. I don't buy that for me, but I do understand how that could be true across the board. I think I'm, I enjoy, I really enjoyed my son and, and being a parent. I think it's one of the most fulfilling things that I can do. But hey, I, I, um, not everyone, not everyone has to agree with me. Continuing on, this viewpoint rationalizes the well known tendency of parents to report lower levels of happiness and life satisfaction. Indeed, the residents of unhappier metropolitan areas today do receive higher wages, presumably as compensation for their misery. Declining cities seem also to have been unhappy during the past, but in 1940, the cities that did decline earned outsized incomes and paid little in higher rents. The industrial cities of the Midwest may have reported lower happiness levels, but their residents were getting richer as a result. As transportation technology freed industry from the Great Lakes and the coal mines, we should not be surprised that people left less pleasant locations. But there remains a puzzle. Today, the residents of cities that declined are not receiving higher wages, and they do not seem to be paying lower rents either. We leave the quest of understanding how this constitutes an equilibrium to future work. So 
the takeaway that I would take away, and I that I would encourage you to consider, and I try to apply all per, you know all these articles to what can I as an individual do? Consider your personal happiness scale. I don't know necessarily how to measure that, but consider your personal happiness scale, and consider are you being compensated for any misery that you're choosing to go under? And so whether that's a misery at a low at a low state, so a long commute, uh, whether that's misery at a, at a more intense state, a very stressful job, but just ask yourself, are you being compensated for it? And figure out if you're being, uh, if you're being, comp- figure out if you're being compensated on it. And you can always adjust. So don't worry about the population in general adjusting. If you live in a miserable city and you have a miserable job, change it. You know, like my little joke that I always understand is if you're a bum in uh, Chicago, uh, you know, or, or New York or one of these places where it's, where it's cold, why would you not go be a bum in Hawaii? Uh, why would you not go be a bum in Florida? Uh, even if you got to walk there or hitchhike there or something, at least go where you're not cold every day. Um, so we can all do the same thing. We can all do the same thing with ourselves. So this led me. This uh, article led me to an interesting. I wanted to explore some of the other research that Harvard has done on happiness, and I came across something I had never read about, which was the Grant study. Which, according to now my research, is one of the longest-running longitudinal, longitudinal studies of human development. The project began in 1938, and it has followed 268 Harvard undergraduate men for 75 years, measuring an astonishing range of psychological, anthropological, and physical traits, from personality type to IQ, drinking habits, family relationships, to physical, uh, physical characteristics, in an effort to determine what factors contribute most strongly to human flourishing. And so there's this interesting study that I found. I actually discovered that uh, in in this study, John F. Kennedy, uh, President John F. Kennedy, was actually part of this original uh, base of of people that were that were being researched. And so uh, a man named George Valent is a Harvard psychiatrist. He directed the study from 1974 to 2004, and he's written various books about it. I'm going to read from one article here about some of the the overview of of his output of his results, but I've added a couple of his books to my uh, to my reading list. One of them is called Aging Well, Surprising Guideposts to a Happier Life from the Landmark Study of Adult Development. And the other one is actually I'm probably most interested in is called, um, well, these are both well, these are both interesting. The other one is called Triumphs of Experience, The Men of the Harvard Grant Study. And there's some takeaways that I'm going to read from the, the um, synopsis of those books in just a moment. But here's a summary of the five outputs that George Valent uh, talked about, uh, five lessons from the Grant study, and I'll read this from a Huffington Post article. So below, five lessons from the Grant study to apply to your own pursuit of a happier and more meaningful life. Love is really all that matters. It may seem obvious, but that doesn't make it any less true. Love is key to a happy and fulfilling life. As Valent puts it, there are two pillars of happiness. Quote, one is love, he writes, the other is finding a way of coping with life that does not push love away. Valen has said that the study's most important finding is that the only thing that matters in life is relationships. A man could have a successful career, money, and good physical health, but without supportive, loving relationships, he wouldn't be happy. happy. Quote, happiness is only the cart. Love is the horse. It's about more than money and power. The Grant study's findings echoed those of other studies, that acquiring more money and power doesn't correlate to greater happiness. That's not to say money or traditional career success don't matter, but they're small parts of a much larger picture. 
And while they may loom large for us in the moment, they diminish in importance when viewed in the context of a full life. Quote, we found that contentment in the late 70s was not even suggestively associated with parental social class or even the man's own income, says Valent. In terms of achievement, the only thing that matters is that you be content at your work. Regardless of how we begin life, we can all become happier. A man named Godfrey Minnett Camille went into the grant study with fairly bleak prospects for life satisfaction. He had the lowest rating for future stability of all the subjects, and he had previously attempted suicide. But at the end of his life, he was one of the happiest. Why? As Valent, ex Valent explains, quote, he spent his life searching for love. Connection is crucial. Quote, joy is connection, Valent says. The more areas in your life you can make connection, the better. The study found strong relationships to be far and away the strongest predictor of life satisfaction. And in terms of career satisfaction, too, feeling connected to one's work was far more important than making money or achieving traditional success. The conclusion of the study, not in a medical but in a psychological sense, is that connection is the whole shooting match, says Valent. As life goes on, connections become even more important. The grant study provides strong support for the growing body of research that has linked social ties with longevity, lower stress levels, and improved overall well-being. Challenges and the perspective they give you can make you happier. The journey from immaturity to maturity, says Valent, is a sort of movement from narcissism to connection. And a big part of this shift has to do with the way we deal with challenges. Coping mechanisms, the capacity to make gold out of junk, as Valent puts it, have a significant effect on social support and overall well-being. The secret is replacing narcissism, a single-minded focus on one's own emotional oscillations and perceived problems, with mature coping defenses, Valent explains, citing Mother Teresa and Beethoven as examples. Mother Teresa had a perfectly terrible childhood, and her inner spiritual life was very painful, says Valent, but she had a highly successful life by caring about other people. Creative expression is another way to productively deal with challenges and achieve meaning and well-being. Quote, the secret of Beethoven being able to cope with misery through his art was when he wrote Ode to Joy, says Valent. Beethoven was able to make connection with his music. So I find that really interesting, a really interesting article, and, and just simply connecting, that ultimately love and connections are incredibly important, incredibly important. And this is one of the things that I observe in my own life as a constant challenge and then in other people's lives as well, is there is a need for prioritizing financial achievement. There is a need to prioritizing financial steps. But if you do it to the exclusion of love, connections, relationships, and doing work that matters, it's very likely that it may not make you happy. And you see this a lot of times with the research that's done on lotto winners. You, do this, you see this with the research that's done on uh, trust fund kids. Um, you see this, that, that uh, achievement, that the, 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 the need to do something, the need to work and to be productive, and the need to meet a challenge is directly related to, uh, the, is directly related to your success. And so... The idea that we're just going to walk away from work and from the, walk, the idea that we're going to walk away from um, challenge and that we're just going to get to the point where life is hunky-dory and there's no need to, there's no need to, um, to work. I mean, this is, a, this is a real problem that we've got to be, be aware of. I've been reading um, 
the book called You're Not That Great by Daniel Crosby. And he goes into, I think I mentioned this on a previous show, he goes into in detail on the research on self-esteem. And what he finds is that the biggest predict, one of the biggest predictors of people with self-esteem and success is not being told that you are just good at something, that you're skilled at something, but rather those who work have to work and have to work at achieving something. And so it's far more powerful to compliment your children on the work that they put into something rather than it is to tell them that they're just very good at it. And so I find it really interesting. I find it really interesting, the, uh, uh, the study, and I'm interested in reading a couple of these books about the Grant study. So also, uh, one thing I'm going to pull from the Wikipedia article in the Grant study. Uh, so he talks about alcoholism as a major problem, major cause of d- divorce, neuroses, and depression, and that follows alcohol abuse rather than preceding it. And it's an alcoholism with the associated cigarette smoking is the single greatest contributor to people's early morbidity and death, um, which those are the same thing. So I don't know why they put both words in there. Uh, need to tell that Wikipedia contributor morbidity means death. Uh, financial success, however, here's the point I want to make. Financial success depends on warmth of relationships and above a certain level, not on intelligence. So this is interesting. Those who scored highest on measurements of warm relationships earned an average of $141,000 a year more at their peak salaries, usually between ages 55 and 60. And there was no significant difference in maximum income earned by men with IQs in the 110 to 115 range and men with IQs higher than 150. To me, this is a major takeaway, and we're going to go right next after this into some jobs discussions and some articles that I found on employment figures. But the ability to be socially competent, the ability to develop and maintain good relationships is a major, major contributing factor to, to, to success in life, including financial success. I remember reading a book, uh, I think it was popular in the 80s or 90s, I don't remember, but called Emotional Intelligence. And it was talking about how when you did some of the, one of the greatest predictors of people's success in life was their their emotional intelligence, their ability to empathize with other people. And to me, this makes intuitive sense. I don't remember the the research that was done in that book as far as from a, a statistical basis. But to me, this makes intuitive sense. Because in work, in life, and in relationships, everything that we do is based upon our work with others. And everything that we do, we have to interact with human beings. And so the people who are the most effective and the most skilled at interacting with other human beings and leading them and inspiring them, whether this is in a marriage, interacting with your spouse and inspiring that person to continue to love you, to inspiring that person to continue to work with you towards the achievement of common goals, whether this is in, in, in companies, whether this is in communication. If, somebody, if we can't inspire other people and really have positive relationships, it's very difficult to, it's very difficult to understand how to... Um, uh, it's, under, it's difficult to understand how to make a lot of money. So the most financial, if you're not making very much, uh, if you're not, if you're struggling with your income, consider more than in adi- or in addition to learning technical skills, spend some time considering developing and practicing social skills. The good thing is the social skills are, are, are learned. And a lot of times if our parents were very skilled socially, uh, the ability to maintain healthy relationships, that can be a major benefit for us. And then uh, we can intuitively just pass that along. 
Now, one other thing I want to point out from this research by uh, Valen, uh, or excuse me, Valen, George Valen, from this book, looking from his book called Aging Well, The Surprising Guideposts to a Happier Life from the Landmark Study of Adult Development. So this is an interesting, this seems like an interesting book to me. And in the, uh, in the Amazon review, the editorial review here, one of the things that thought that was really really key and again this is primarily this is primarily interviews with people in their 70s and their 80s and i love talking to old people because i figure you work talking with old people you're going to get a, a bit of a perspective into the things you should pay attention to when you're new and i've read various of these books there's lots of them out there but this one's interesting to me one paragraph here we also learn what makes old age vital and interesting valent discusses the important adult developmental tasks such as identity intimacy, and generativity, giving to the next generation, and provides important clues to a healthy, meaningful, satisfying old age. Health in old age, we learn, is not predicted by low cholesterol or ancestral longevity, but by factors such as a stable marriage, adaptive coping style, which is the ability to make lemonade out of life's lemons, and regular exercise. Valent is empathetic and sometimes surprisingly poetic. Owning an old brain, you see, is rather like owning an old car. Careful driving and maintenance are everything. So to me, this is a fascinating point, just that in this summary, is that health is predicted not by low cholesterol, but by factors such as a stable marriage, adaptive coping style, and regular exercise. So I struggle with the exercise bit. I'm trying to transform that habit, but I've never found exercise that I've enjoyed and really working hard to figure out how to incentivize myself to make that a lifelong habit because whether it's from preventing Alzheimer's disease or aging effectively or just maintaining physical health, that's always been a struggle for me. So I'm working on that one. The adaptive coping style I see is really valuable is also the importance, the ability to say no matter what the challenge is going to be okay. And I think we can really do a lot with that with good financial planning. By always having a backup plan and by really developing a good financial plan, we can have backup plans and then by not overstressing ourselves. So, for example, maybe not uh, staying out of debt, not going deeply into debt to fund a business venture where the, where the pain of failure can be more than the pain of success. Maybe better to avoid some of those difficult situations, but yet still realizing and doing it in an intelligent way, like I talk about, do it in an intelligent way so that if all goes wrong, you know, life does not end at bankruptcy. Life does not end at credit card debt. It continues going on. And then also factors such as a stable marriage. So having a stable marriage, I tell you the number one biggest financial mistake that I see in financial planning work, getting divorced. So if we can avoid that and build a stable marriage over time, this can make a dramatic difference in our personal personal happiness and well-being. And I'm using his book here as evidence towards that, uh, towards my hypothesis, and also towards our you know, towards our financial well-being. It is very expensive and a major problem of getting divorced, both because, in general, divorce will split up assets, but it also just divides the economies of scale. So two people living and working together have major economies of scale that are not available to one person on their own. So just simply consider that in your own financial planning and make sure that you are giving time and attention. Like I talk about with alternative investments, it may be a better investment to take a weekend, hire a babysitter for the kids, and go to a marriage retreat or a marriage seminar with your spouse. That may be a better investment than putting money into your IRA. Not saying it always is, but maybe better than putting money in your IRA. So consider that and consider giving yourself permission to spend on those things. Investing in a gym membership. 
likely would be a better investment uh, than putting money into the IRA. I remember there's a famous quote by Richard Branson talking about his how exercise gives him a couple of additional hours of productivity every day. And I personally struggle with this one because I hate to spend money on, on a gym. I hate to spend that money, but yet I don't seem to have the internal discipline and motivation to, to force myself to daily be active without it. So I kind of have to have had to, to justify it saying this is an investment by investing in my health that will pay off major dividends that will pay off major dividends. All right, moving on to job numbers. So I find the job numbers interesting. And so in job numbers, we're going to read here from a Yahoo Finance article from this morning, July 21 at 10 a.m. So this is NABE survey points to rising U.S. wage pressures. And this is a Reuters story. And I'm going to read a couple paragraphs here. Washington, Reuters. The share of U.S. companies raising wages more than doubled in three months to July from a year ago. A survey showed on Monday suggesting a faster pace of wage growth. The National Association for Business Economics, NABE, latest business conditions survey found that 43% of the 79 economists who participated said their firms had increased wages. That compared to only 19% last year and and marked... that, that compared to only 19% last year and marked an increase from 35% in the three months to April. That was confusing. Quote, for the third survey in a row, an increasing share of panelists reported rising wage costs last quarter, said NABE President Jack Kleinheinz, who was also chief economist at the National Retail Federation. It was the first time since October 2012 that no respondents reported declining wages at their firms. The economists represented a broad spectrum of businesses, including goods producing, transportation, finance, and services industries. 40% of the firms employ more than 1,000 people. So I'm going to skip uh, some of the paragraphs here and skip to the end here. Uh, One last paragraph. It says, While the share of businesses reporting that they could not find qualified workers slipped three-tenths of a percentage point to 22%, Skills shortages remained the dominant theme. I want to focus on that. There is very much a supply and demand relationship with employment. So assume you ignore everything I say with entrepreneurship and you want to maintain, stay, stay in the world of employment. Absolutely nothing wrong with that if that's the path that you choose. But consider this paragraph. Skills shortages remained the dominant theme. And in every study and everything I read about employment, I find this, is that right now, people say, well, there's high unemployment. But the thing is, is that there's not. But it depends on the, on the segment. So anytime you read articles and say, well, there's you know, massive unemployment, look, the economy is terrible. There are businesses and there are industries in which jobs are booming that are absolutely just taking off in an incredible way. But then there are industries and and businesses where there is nothing, where there are no financial prospects. And the key is that it is – here's one thing I'd like to share. If you've never hired somebody, I would encourage you, figure out how to start a business and get yourself in the position of hiring someone. And then even if you choose to never be an entrepreneur again and you want to be in the situation where you just simply work for other people, you will have an opportunity then to appreciate how challenging it is to find good help and how challenging it is to find someone who is able to help you with what you need. And hiring people is one of the most difficult things that employers do. Employers want employees, but they want skilled employees. And so your job prospects do not come from how great your resume is unless your resume is reflecting skills. They don't come from how good at interviewing you are 
unless your interview is conveying skills. So spend less time on here's how to interview, although I think that's probably one important piece, and spend more time developing skills. And a lot of times we have this the other way around. We say, well, I'm going to demand more from an employer. I'm going to go out and I'm going to ask for more, and then I'm going to go ahead and develop the skills. Why don't you start by developing the skills first? And skill acquisition can be done at a very cheap price in today's world. So if you find yourself in a difficult financial position, spend less, spend some time thinking about what would be your ideal job, ideal business, ideal industry, and then figure out what do I need to do to develop skills? What do I need to do to develop skills in an area that is, that is in demand? So uh, one article I want to reference here. This is um, from Clark Howard's blog, and his is called Top 10 Jobs in Demand Right Now. And this was posted July 9, so a couple weeks ago, by Clark Howard. We're in an age when there's real disconnect between skill sets and job openings. That's created a lot of demand in some high-paying fields. Many of the job openings that are going unfilled require you to go back to school to get more education. STEM jobs, which involves the field of science, technology, engineering, or math are, are particularly hot right now. Here's a partial list of the kinds of jobs that are available along with average starting salary. Top 10 jobs with lots of openings and great starting salaries. Petroleum engineers start at $85,000. Senior landmen start at $55,000. Software engineers start at $60,000. Electrical engineers start at $60,000. Mechanical engineers start at $55,000. Software developers start at $55,000. Financial analysts start at $50,000. Communication coordinators start at $35,000. Marketing coordinators start at $35,000. Certified public accountants start at $45,000. Continuing education is core to our future as a nation. You've got to morph yourself over time to fit the job market as it, as it changes over time. That's key to our future, now and tomorrow. Other top careers in demand might surprise you. If you're looking for work, you don't want to go back to a traditional four-year college. There's one industry you might want to consider with average pay around $50,000. It's trucking. Now, I know truckers themselves will tell you theirs isn't a field you should enter into lightly. But if you're unemployed or involuntarily working part-time, you might want to give this a second look. Trucking companies are so short of workers to drive loads that they're having to turn away business, according to the Wall Street Journal. You may have heard deliveries have been late because of this. Just-in-time delivery for factories will be the next domino to fall. Factories that run on lean inventories with just hours of parts in stock have long relied on trucks to be their warehouse. But if the current vacancies in trucking continue, those factories are going to need inventory on hand and will find themselves in a real bind. Maybe trucking is not what you're interested in, but there are opportunities out there and it is possible to find some careers in demand that might be a better fit. One of the best ideas is to move where, to where the work is. America's heartland is rolling in jobs and riches. Our nation's heartland is derisively labeled flyover country by media types in New York and Los Angeles. But the nation's breadbasket is actually overflowing with bread, according to recent data from the Bureau of Economic Analysis. Per capita income is up roughly 4% over the last four years for the 50-plus million who live in the heartland. This is a reversal of a long-standing trend where wealth flowed to coastal metropolitan metropolises like New York and Los Angeles. USA Today reports America's midsection is doing just fine. For example, North Dakota has high-paying jobs in the booming energy industry going unfilled, and there's a severe shortage of housing for workers. 
Just to give you an idea, I've heard anecdotally and read reports that at McDonald's, that jobs at McDonald's start at $17 an hour in some locales in North Dakota. That right there gives you an idea of prevailing wages in other sectors of the economy. So North Dakota and its Heartland neighbors offer an opportunity that so many have overlooked. Sully County in South Dakota was singled out as another place that experienced per capita income growth of 70% over the course of the last four years. Of course, living and working in these places comes with a sacrifice involving the severe winters. You've got to be a hardy sort to deal with it, to be sure. But the idea is we've always been a people to migrate where the opportunity is. A lot of us couldn't move because of the housing lock during the recession. Yet today we have fewer people upside down in their homes. So we are in a time when most of us, if we choose, can be on the move. Now you may not be of a mind to pick up and relocate. Though if having more opportunity for yourself, your future, or your family is top priority, then being on the move is something you might want to at least consider. So I think Clark did a great job with this with this article, and, and I really respect him. I, I, he's one of my favorite um, commentators. He does a good job with his show, and I would encourage you to listen to it. I think you would enjoy it. He does a really good job with the constraints that are on him as far as producing a popular entertainment show. And he's authentic and, and sincere, uh, in my opinion. So he does a good job. So... I want to tie these articles together and talk about how all of these things can can connect. And here's why. Anytime you look at a massive across-the-board, anytime you look at a massive across-the-board analysis, it's going to show uh, an average. But you are not average. You can do something different. You have the choice. So I don't have any plan that's going to fix all of the economic problems of the world, but we could design dozens and dozens and dozens of potential plans to fix all of your economic problems or all of my economic problems. Now, everything comes with choices and trade-offs. There's an opportunity cost to every single course of action that we pursue. Some courses of action, we may be willing to accept those opportunity costs. Some courses of action, we may not be willing to accept those opportunity costs. And it will be different for each of us. But I'll give you an example of one, one example that I heard. I was in a uh, cigar shop maybe seven or eight years ago. Uh, with I, like, I enjoy hanging out. If you're not a cigar smoker, I enjoy hanging out in cigar shops because you've got nice couches. You've got, uh, you got leather couches you can sit and you can just chat with people on an ongoing period of time. I tell my wife it's the last remaining bastion of manliness, that in the barber shop if you get into get a good like, male-oriented barbershop if you're a guy. So I'm um, in this, this cigar shop, and I was in there, and it was a morning on like, something like a mid- weekday morning. And I was in there because I was avoiding work that I needed to be doing. I was avoiding uh, the difficult work of picking up the phone and calling prospects and clients for, for, uh, for my financial planning business. So I was avoiding that and wasting time. And I'm sitting there talking to this guy who was uh, clearly financially independent. He was wealthy, and he was just sitting there enjoying a cigar. And he was a neat guy. I don't remember. I don't remember what his name was. A uh, real big black guy. Just a real neat, uh, real neat guy. And we talked for quite a while. And he was telling me about his experience. And he was talking about um, his experience of of trucking. And I asked him how he built his wealth. And he said, well, you know, I was flat on my back and I went and I got a trucking job and I I didn't have a place to live. I lived in my truck. And then I sold that when I bought a truck of my own and I built a trucking company up and I built this trucking company and I built it to, I don't remember how many trucks he had, but he had a couple dozen trucks and then I sold it and I retired. And we were talking, he was just sharing some of his business lessons and an awesome, awesome experience. Um, um, Real big guy, never had any formal, never form, never had any formal business training, or never had any formal education. But he had figured out this path to allow him to achieve what he was looking to achieve. 
And so when I read stories like this, my mind kind of bursts with ideas that could be put in place. So let's say that you wanted to, let's say that you've read this job. Let's just go based upon Clark Howard's article. And hear me out. I'm not saying what you should do. you got to design what you should do. I wouldn't follow necessarily all these plans I'm about to spit out. But here's how I could see these things coordinated. So you want one of these top 10 jobs. You're, you're unemployed. You're, you're unemployed and don't have any money. Okay, you're totally broke, you are mid-career, you're mid-life or something like that, you're unemployed and don't have any money, and you, you would like to call a financial planner, but you don't have any ideas about how things could go better. You don't have any marketable skills, you don't have any ability, you don't have any marketable skills. All right, so you read this list of top 10 jobs, and you just pick one, and it says software developers start at $55,000, and I'm picking that because it's a little bit easier. You know, I've never been, an, I'm, I've never, never been an electrical engineer, but any of these, you could do these with any of these. So you say, here's a top 10 job with lots of openings and a great starting salaries, but I don't have any skills. But what I could do is I could become a trucker. So you could say, I could become a trucker, and I'm going to go and do that. And I should in a couple of, whether it takes me a couple of weekends to learn how to drive a, a big rig. And I know this is a challenging field, but I don't want to do it forever, but I'm going to do it for a period of time. So I'm going to learn how to drive a big rig, and I'm going to take a long haul over the road trucking job. Well, uh, so you go and shoot, maybe you have to put the money on a credit card to go to, to go to school and go to your trucking school and get your class A uh, trucking license. Then you sell your stuff and you move into the truck. Now, is this something fun that you should do forever? No, but I can make a way to make it to make it fun. So first of all, if you're willing to just be on the road full time, you could probably afford to work for someone who has a nice truck where they've got a big sleeper in it or get your own that's a that's a nice truck that has a big that has a big sleeper in it. So you basically have a small RV that you're living in. Truckers are minim, are mandated only a certain number of hours that you have to to drive every day. So I love going to truck stops when my wife and I travel and you'll see the truckers are always in there on their rest. They're sitting there watching TV, they're sitting there reading newspapers. Now I know not all of them, but I watch a lot of them standing out in the parking lot talking to each other. And I see a lot of people really just wasting time. Now everyone has the I'm not mad at people for wasting time. That's fine. But think about the time that you have available when you live in your house and you work in your house and you're on the road. With the world of podcasting, with the world of the internet, with the world of YouTube, with the world of iTunes University, with the world of massive open online coursework, where the world in the world of Stanford, where they have unlimited um, employment opportunities put out, excuse me, unlimited classes distributed for free online, why don't you turn your drive time into learning time, listening to podcasts, learning about coding, listening to classes, and do your best to listen to the non-technical stuff while, you're, while you are driving. And then when you're parked and on your rest time, take your rest time and take your time relaxing, but when you're parked, whether when you're off duty, then you have the ability to, to do the technical coursework. Take your computer, learn online, develop the ability or the skill to become a CPA. Study for the CPA exam. Develop the skill. And so for the CPA, I think you have to have a college degree. So maybe you need to go and get a study away, um, a study, an online uh, college degree from an inexpensive provider. And then you can sit for the CPA exam and study that while, you're, while you are trucking across the country. Live in your truck. Save 90% of your income. If you're feeling deprived because you're living in a truck, then take some of the money that, and instead of spending it on rent in an apartment that you're never in, take some of the money and uh, put it into, take some of the money and put it and spend it on going to fun resort places and hanging out in, in fancy hotels while you're on your weekends off or whatever it is that you have. So 
This is something that husbands and wives could do. Uh, I bet it's something that could be done with kids, although that would not be my first thing. It may be easier for a single person. I've heard of long-haul trucking teams of, of, of couples that in their uh, 50s or 60s didn't have any money. And they said, well, let's go get paid to go see the, war- see the country uh, from the interstate and save you know, almost 100% of their income. And by not having to support the lifestyle at home, you can save almost 100% of your income and build up a financial nest egg and have an incredible start to life. So this is just one example. Now, I don't know if that's right. I've never been a trucker. I'm sure it's a difficult job. I know it is. Uh, I know you spend a lot of hours. But it's the type of thing where you could, you could apply a couple of these things to your situation. You could go be a trucker up in North and South Dakota. You can go up there. You can bank that money. You can buy a, buy a, I don't know, a, sm- a cheap camper and go and be at, work at McDonald's up in South Dakota or North Dakota and make 17 bucks an hour, save the money, and build your education. So you can do these kinds of things. You can exploit the the inefficiencies that exist in this market and you could get your education needs that you need to go into one of these higher demand jobs and over a period of time you know three four five years i don't know you could you could build a plan that works so that would just be an example of how when i read these articles i say well yes there are these large um overall systemic problems but yet there's a lot that can be done to uh, there's a lot that can be done to exploit your own situation and to build in your own advantages look for an area where you can exploit an inefficiency that that in the marketplace to build a better plan for yourself and that would be one example that i thought of when thinking about these jobs also as clark pointed out in his article don't be scared to move if you are willing to move don't be scared to change jobs change industries if those if that's something that you can do or and are willing to do uh, lighter note here, Amazon officially announces the Kindle Unlimited, offering endless reading and listening for $9.99 a month. So I thought this was a cool announcement that I found uh, last week, that Amazon is offering over 600,000 books for free reading on the Kindle and Kindle-enabled devices, as well as thousands of audiobooks from Audible. So I thought this was pretty cool, and it's a neat, uh, a neat development in that marketplace. And if you're living in a truck and working in a truck, then you might be in a good position where you are able to exploit this. And for 10 a month, you've got an unlimited library without having to go to an actual physical library. So consider consider this. Now, I found one article by Jonathan Ping over at My Money Blog, and he had checked out his article. is called Kindle Unlimited Review: Personal Finance and Investing Books. So. The claim is that over they claim over six hundred thousand titles Amazon does in their library. Although that number is padded by a lot of little-known self-published ebooks, thousands of those books comes with come with free audiobook versions. You can read unlimited books, maximum ten out at once, and on any Kindle app. It's a library card with twenty-four-seven instant availability. But how well stocked is this virtual library? So he made a listing of his uh, personal finance books that he had had takes takes out so he's got a list here of uh, william bernstein's recommended reading list for young investors and millionaire next door not available on this right now common sense on mutual funds no devil take the hindmost no great depression no your money in your brain no how a second grader beats wall street no all about asset allocation no flash boys yes pound foolish no Think Like a Freak? No. Capital in the 21st Century? Yes. Thinking Fast and Slow? No. And then his five personal favorite financial books, Your Money or Your Life, Work Less, Live More, The Richest Man in Babylon, The Four Pillars of Investing, and A Random Walk Down Wall Street? No. 
So sounds like if you're interested in the personal finance space, this probably isn't going to work right yet. But I would say this is just the start. And this is going to be an amazing development over time where when Amazon is offering this for Kindle, that there's an opportunity to do that. And as they, uh, there's, an op- there's an amazing opportunity here to, on a very low price, get unlimited access to books. And that's going to be a really great development in the market. Uh, and, and I'm sure that the access to the personal and finance sections will change over time. And so I'm sure that this is, a, this is a good development. I'm pretty excited about it. Check it out. See if it will serve you and see if it's something that you can implement in your own life. Next story here is from Yahoo Finance, and the title is called The Myth of Economic Patriotism. And the byline here is July 17. And I thought this was a fun article. I'm going to point it out to you uh, because I thought it was a good illustration of how no matter what the political situation is, you will always have companies that can work around it and work through it, and they will make decisions that are in the best interest of their owners. So I am a, I'm a political pessimist with any ability to change things politically. But I do think that as people, as politicians, do stupid things, pass more legislation, take more money, you will always have people making decisions, and, and people are going to make decisions. And there's a point in time at which there's a point in time at which um, people just simply will not there's a point in time at which we'll all say okay that's enough now this is why you've seen in in reality very little change in individual income tax rates over the last several decades is that there's been very little change for the middle class because it's my opinion that I'm speculating but I think the politicians understand and real, realize that if you increase taxes significantly on the middle class, you upset the apple cart. And so they can increase taxes on on the highest income earners, but if they increase them across the board, they're going to have a problem. So I don't expect major changes in tax policy to change just simply because of this reality. And here would be some evidence that I would employ to do it, which, by the way, one of my little asides, I don't understand why they raise income, why they wouldn't just seems smart to me. Why don't we just scrap the income tax or switch to a completely different version? Because wealthy people get wealthy by looking for looking for opportunities and things that they can exploit. That's one of the things that you got to do. You got to look for an inefficiency. And wealthy people are willing to pay for good advice. So they're willing to pay guys like me or guys much smarter than me. You know, 50, I'm not that smart. There's guys a lot smarter than me to sit around and read the tax code to find the loophole that they can exploit. Um, that was how 401ks came out. There was a, a pension consultant, uh, I think his name was like Jack Benna or something like that, who was sitting there reading the, the, he was a pension consultant, he's sitting there reading the tax code and he says, wait a second, I can do this. And a major change happens. So, you know, wealthy people are willing to pay people for advice. So I'm going to try to give you the advice for free, but let's read this article. CEOs get paid very well to deal with every challenge that pops up. Now there's a new one, practice proving they practice, quote, economic patriotism. This new form of patriotism has become an issue now that several big U.S. companies have decided to relocate their headquarters to other countries in order to lower their tax bill. These so-called tax inversions require a merger with a foreign company, a strategy big firms such as AbbVie, Milan, Walgreen, Medtronic, Chiquita Brands, and others have been pursuing. Since the U.S. corporate tax rate is one of the highest in the developed world, moving overseas can save a bundle of money. Reforming and simplifying the U.S. tax code might solve the problem, except a fitful Congress obsessed with political spitball fights is unlikely to take that up anytime soon. In a July 15 letter to congressional leaders pleading for some kind of action, Treasury Secretary Jack Lew proclaimed, quote, What we need as a nation is a new sense of economic patriotism, where we all rise or fall together, close quote. 
Some tax inverters are more susceptible to charges of sedition than others. Since Walgreen, Milan, and AbbVie are in the healthcare business, for instance, they earn considerable revenue from taxpayer-funded programs such as Medicaid and Medicare. So they're seeking to slash their own obligations to Uncle Sam while benefiting directly from the payments of others, a contrast the New York Times described as morally disconcerting. While other patriotic calls have unified the nation, however, Lou's plea for economic patriotism has provoked political opponents. In a rebuttal to Lou's letter, the conservative editorial page of the Wall Street Journal characterized the letter as a political stunt, while declaring that, quote, Mr. Lou doesn't know much about economics. Mr. Lou's letter shows that the White House now wants to exploit the inversion flurry as an election year opportunity to demagogue business, close quote. Political infighting over the mercenary behavior of corporate America raises an intriguing new question. What is economic patriotism anyway? Liu, in his rise or fall remark, seems to suggest U.S. companies ought to align themselves with the fortunes of the American middle class and go down with the ship if that's where the middle class is heading. But Liu, who was a senior Citigroup executive from 2006 through 2009, surely knows that is not how public companies operate. The main job of a CEO is to optimize the return to shareholders, period. It's nice when that primary mission coincides with feel-good national policies, but when it doesn't, shareholders come first. And with nearly half of all revenue for American big firms coming from foreign sales, it's imperative for those firms to remain competitive against rivals in other nations that face a lower tax burden and are eager to exploit any cost advantage they can. But pause here. Notice two things from one of this. First of all, it says that a CEO's major job, major goal is to optimize the return to shareholders. I like that that uh, defin- that definition return uh, because return leaves it open to describe it in financial return, uh, return on capital, return on equity, or it also opens it up to describe it in other return. And so a share, uh, depending on how the company is structured, that opens up for companies to maximize their return to their shareholders based upon other non-financial aspects. So you'll see this is a big move right now that's happening in companies. The second thing, however, here is notice that the uh, that the, these uh, these statistics with nearly half of all revenue for America's big firms coming from foreign sales, it's imperative for those firms to remain competitive against rivals in other nations that face a lower tax burden and are eager to exploit any cost advantage they can. One of the things I see, one of the major mistakes that I see people make when it comes to investing, is that they focus on the the. The, the politics or the the market, not the companies. They're focusing on the society, the political, the country, not the companies. That would be the best way to say it. They focus on the countries and not the companies. Half of all revenue for America's largest companies comes from other countries. So right there, no matter how great or bad America's prospects, people say, why is it that we have certain prospects in certain economic situations in the United States of America, and why do these numbers not seem to be reflected in the financial performance of large American firms? Because half of all revenue comes from, from foreign sales, from outside the country. The second thing is no matter how onerous the country, there's going to be, a, no, no matter how onerous the uh, the restrictions and the regulations, a good CEO and a good board of directors is going to be protecting their country's interests. And so if Walgreens can can 
uh, merge with another carrier and move abroad, uh, then they can cut their tax rate for their shareholders. It doesn't matter where their shareholders are. And so I love this development. I think this is awesome because it brings in the idea of international competition. Uh, one of my favorite countries in the in the world, or I guess it's technically a special administrative region now, I guess we can still call it a country, is Hong Kong. And so in China, you can go to Hong Kong, and you can just see that it's one of the most alive, bustling, busiest places in the world. And they are competing with each other. You've got Singapore and Hong Kong competing. They compete in different things. You've got all of the, the international uh, stock exchanges. You've got uh, all these international stock exchanges competing with one another, where you don't just have the New York Stock Exchange. You've got uh, New York Stock Exchange is owned by, ah, who is it? Is it the, uh, London? Anyway, this, they're owned by an international company now. I don't remember the name of the company. So this is uh, a major – I love this development. I, I bring on the competition because the only thing that's going to affect, that's going to affect the politicians – that's going to move the politicians' hands – to change things is competition. This is the same thing that's happening in states, is that you have different states, and I'm skipping here the ranking in U.S. states article, all included in the show notes, but just talking about the joblessness in states. And so ranking U.S. states by job creation in the past five years. And so this ability to compete among states leads to some states having an extremely healthy job market. And finally, when people are just lingering and languishing in a place with no job market, why is it that Detroit has gone from a, a, a population of 1.8 million people to 700,000, I think, is the latest number that I remember? Uh, 1.8 million to 700,000 because of the changes of there's no jobs. And so now these people move to Texas, they move to Florida, they move to uh, other states that have, what is the state here that has the highest uh, job rates? Um, North Dakota. They moved to North Dakota. Uh, North Dakota has a 2.7% unemployment rate, whereas Mississippi and Rhode Island have 7.9% unemployment rates. And so now you figure out what is it that North Dakota is doing to compete? And Michigan versus North Dakota, is there a dramatic difference in the climate? I don't know. I never lived in either place, but I would get. They both have snow. That's all I know. I'm from Florida, <laughs> so the this is awesome. I love this development because this will force people to 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 um, compete. So if you want hedge, I mean, this is why hedge funds are based down in the in the uh, uh, what's the name of that uh, island down in uh, anyway that island. It's not, not the Virgin Islands. Uh, it's not Barbados. Anyway, that island down in the down in the Caribbean here that is where many of the big hedge funds are based. The Caymans, that's what it is, the Caymans. So um, the Cayman Islands, many hedge funds are based in the Cayman Islands, and they're going to be uh, based in another in another place where they're able to where they're able to compete more effectively. And so I think this is I think this is fantastic. One, uh, let me finish this out because there's a couple interesting there's a couple interesting. Um, uh, a couple interesting more points that I want to that I want to believe. Corporate behavior obviously affects a company's image, which can in turn affect profitability. But a company taking perfectly legal steps to minimize its tax bill isn't likely to generate enough outrage to impact its bottom line. This is why you see uh, this is why you see people. Uh, my commentary. This is why you see um, the politician. You see how you see Jack Lew trying to talk about economic patriotism. Uh, Americans are ambivalent about taxes at best, and they tend to believe the government is a voracious money eater that wastes a lot of the tax revenue it brings in anyway. So even if U.S. consumers are uncomfortable with the idea of companies dodging taxes, they're not likely to resort to boycotts or other measures typically reserved for firms caught discriminating, trashing natural resources, or blatantly cheating. If there are any economic traders in this story, it's in fact, it's not U.S. companies but the politicians who have left them with the booby-trapped tax code that creates powerful incentives to pay taxes someplace else. 
Republicans and Democrats agree the tax code has become a porous mess, riddled with loopholes only high-priced tax experts can comprehend. President Obama wants to fix it, but hasn't pressed for tax reform because other priorities seem to have a better chance of getting somewhere. Republicans want to fix the tax code, too, but are waiting for some future date at which they hope to have more leverage in Congress and a better chance of enacting the tax changes they prefer. I believe that one when I see it. Businesses, meanwhile, must pay taxes in real time and can't wait for theoretical reforms from a legislative body with a response time of a decade or two. So business leaders are doing what's pragmatic, even if it's objectionable, maintaining their edge through whatever legal means are available. So this might be a reasonable way to define economic patriotism. Pay what you owe and nothing more, while finding other ways to show support for your nation and your country folk. If you're a business person who profits by operating in America, set up mentoring programs to help young people get ahead or go out of your way to hire the underprivileged or find some other way to give back. If you're a corporation, abide by the letter of the law, be honest with your shareholders about how you're making your money, and accept the consequences if American customers punish you for expediency. And if you're an ordinary voter, you can show your economic patriotism by demanding the government adopt policies that make America indisputably the best place to start and run a business, instead of a winded giant that seems unable to keep up with the rest of the world. So uh, I would say if you're an ordinary voter, uh, just simply defund the whole system the best you can by listening to my show. And uh, that will money talks to politicians, money talks. So I commend that article to you. Well, I just read you the whole thing, but I think it's an interesting, and I commend you to say, if you want to have patriotism in some other form, fine, go with it. But uh, I commend, I suggest you follow these other people's uh, advice, or uh, you, I suggest that you follow these other uh, businesses and business leaders' uh, path and avoid as many of these taxes as possible because that will will pay that will work in today's world when a company can be headquartered anywhere in the world whether they want to be headquartered in in the middle east in dubai whether they want it in hong kong and there's very little difference and now you have more and more people willing to move there willing to be pick up pick up um, their belongings and go there and still be connected you're going to have more and more and more of this couple more articles here. New York Times article from called In a Subprime Bubble for Used Cars, Borrowers Pay Sky-High Rates. This is a lengthy article. I'm not going to read, read much from it, but I commend it to you to consider. And this is an interesting trend to watch, and it breaks my heart. But basically, the idea is that there is a huge American uh, movement, uh, a surge in subprime lending to for used cars. And so people who don't have much money and uh, are have poor credit history are taking out the taking out loans for themselves uh, and buying cars and the big one that bugs me about this one and by the way i don't know how you define huge in 2006 there's a chart here in 2006 36% of loans um, 36% of new auto loans were for subprime borrowers in 2009, that had decreased to 20%, so it went steadily down, and then it increased from 2009 to 2013 up to 20. Now it's up to 27%. So there's been a seven, uh, an increase from 20% to 27% of new auto loans are to subprime borrowers. So is this a huge increase? I don't know. I don't know the history of this. I haven't researched it to know whether this is this a normal trend moving around the mean, or is this a, a, a statistically important trend but the key thing here is this 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 one bothers me it's so heartbreaking to see people deeply in debt to buy cars that they deeply in debt to buy cars that they can't afford Uh, they don't have the money to pay for them they go deeply in debt then their cars get repossessed and they wind up paying much much more money and we've got to stop this trend by 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 changing 
the uh, the education where instead of it being let me go uh, now you have in, in many ways you do need to have a car and a car is a valuable valuable uh, asset to be able to get to work especially if you're in a low low income situation but we got to change this trend and we got to stop people putting money into these junky cars where they just destroy their value and they're heavily financed i mean it's it's horrible it's 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 absolutely horrible that's why i hope people will listen to my show and uh, i hope that people will listen to my show and um gain some knowledge on this if you have an opportunity to help somebody i've done some financial planning over the years with people at minimum wage earners and a very low income bracket and the thing that i see just that breaks my heart is when they buy buy cars and you get into a situation where you bought car a car on credit and because you bought it on credit the car depreciates to such a point where you're upside down in it substantially where you owe more than it's worth and then because you can't scrape to any cash and you need a car this is endless this is this horrible trap that you get into you can't can't scrape together any cash because you need a car and you don't have any cash and you, so you have to make your monthly payments because let's say that you bought the car for $15,000 and it's actually worth you bought you paid retail price for it you financed it and you have $300 a month monthly payments but the car is only worth $10,000 maybe uh, depending on what you do so to, but you still need a car so to get rid of the car would require you to come up with $5,000 to fund yourself getting out of the car plus at least what a couple thousand bucks for a new car for another car uh, even if you could pay cash and for someone in a minimum wage situation for someone in a low low income low asset situation for a poor person for a broke person to finance to, to to get out you need 7 or 8000 bucks of cash so and it's just not possible so it's easier to deal with the pain of the $300 a month payment even though or the $400 a month payment uh, I did a plan one time for somebody I tried to help and they wouldn't take my advice so I, I wasn't able to help them but I mean the car payment was 50% of their of their income and so um, do your best if you have an opportunity to help somebody with uh, if you have an opportunity to help somebody in a situation to avoid the mistake in the first place or to extend you know a loan to get them out of it in some way if there's someone that you know try to help someone that's caught in this situation and I really want to help us educate the American public so we can avoid this this trap and it's interesting thing in here about uh, hedge funds are looking uh, there was one investment firm I don't remember the name here I think it was a hedge fund that was investing in these notes and they're securitizing the notes and uh, and buying the buying the securitized notes so as a way of trying to get additional uh, as a way of trying to get additional return in today's market so I thought it was an interesting article I commend it to you next last two articles and then we are done for the day I want to commend my friend Brandon over at the mad scientist well I want to commend him for two things uh the article that he wrote this week that caught my eye is called the roth ira horse race but he's finished up his degree and he is um finishing out working on his on his uh financial plan of his his early and financial independence plan and so i want to commend him for that he's been doing an awesome job check out his podcast if you're interested in some interviews with people who have pursued the financial independence path, and it's a really, really neat, uh, really, really neat thing. But he wrote an article this week called "The Roth IRA Horse Race," and I had this is a strategy I've never thought about, and I want to thank him for doing that because I'd never thought of this. I think this is an interesting strategy. Basically, the idea of a Roth IRA horse race, and who this will be most helpful to, is Brandon. Is uh, his plans are built around earning a high income at a period of time and then quitting working. And then in quitting working, because your income is low, adjusting your uh, retirement account balances in such a way that you uh, that you can uh, convert your retirement accounts without – and because your income is so low, you don't pay any taxes. That's my simple answer. So these strategies that he's working on 
are really great strategies, but they're really great. They're going to be most applicable if you are planning a plan. You're planning something where you're going to be working and then you're going to be quitting working. They will not work if you plan to continue working over time or if you don't see yourself or if you're in a higher income and you're not and you're going to be always earning a higher income. But that's not his plan. So his plan is he's working and then done. So he's using uh, IRAs and basically the idea is to invest your money into a 401k plan and an IRA, not paying any income tax on the money. And then once you quit working, because your earned income is so low, then to go ahead and start a plan of converting the money out of the IRA and converting the money out of the traditional 401k into a Roth IRA, but only converting as much as you can convert to stay in a 0% tax bracket. And then after doing the Roth IRA conversion, then building it up where after five, year, uh, after five years in the Roth IRA, you go ahead and distribute it out prior to 59 and a half in order to cover your expenses. So it's a neat strategy. And he, I would commend to you his guinea pig series series that he has on his blog where he has written some software and he's illustrating how the implementation of these strategies can really do a good job to reduce the tax burden and help you to be financially independent at a much earlier age. But one of his ideas here is his Roth IRA horse race. And so basically the idea is, let's say that every year you can you can convert from an IRA into a Roth IRA and then you can recharacterize that conversion back uh, if you want to undo it. So you would recharacterize it before the time that you file your taxes. And so the idea is that let's say that you you have a portfolio, you have a, a stock portfolio and a bond portfolio. And so you go ahead and convert uh, you go ahead and convert in a year. You can pick up $10,000 of income to do a completely income tax-free conversion for his simple numbers. And then you would convert $10,000 of your uh, stock fund into a, from a traditional IRA into a Roth account. And then in a separate account, you would convert $10,000 of your bond fund into a separate Roth IRA. And so, and then keep the funds separate to make it easier to recharacterize it back if you need to. So then, let's assuming that the market moves in one direction or the other, if at the end of the year, reading from his article here, your stock account has increased in value from $10,000 to $18,000, and your bond account has decreased in value from $10,000 to $6,000, then what you, what you would do is you would just undo the recharacterization on the bond portfolio, and you would keep the stock portfolio. So this allows you to keep all $18,000 of the funds converted for the price of only 10000 bucks. But if you had converted your entire portfolio and you were maintaining a 50-50 split between your uh, Roth, excuse me, between your stocks and your bonds, you'd only have a $12,000 in the Roth. So you got some free money in there by playing with your asset classes and doing the conversion. And then he goes through and talks about what if it did the other way, what if you had a decreased amount across the board, and um, how to undo those recharacterizations. I think it's awesome. Uh, I don't, Brandon, if you're listening, uh, I don't see any problem in this. I think this is great, except, man, how are you going to find a brokerage, a broker that will do this for you? I guess, uh, I guess he's a Vanguard, or so maybe Vanguard will do it and make it simple. That would be my only thing is that it's a bit of a hassle, and you're going to have to find a, a broker that's willing to deal with you for these small accounts and to deal with you to do these conversions and these recharacterizations. And I would imagine that you get that, you, again, I've, haven't worked with Vanguard in a while, but maybe they'll do this for you. But um, I think it's a cool idea. And I love that these little little tricks that he's working on exist. So if you're interested in this kind of thing, go over and check it out. 
check out his Roth IRA horse race article and read some of his other articles on tax avoidance. He's doing a really brilliant job of, of developing some of the strategies and tools that you can implement in, uh, in the, the scenario that I described of working for a period of time, saving aggressively and then quitting and using retirement accounts to avoid the taxes to, uh, to, to really amp up your returns overall. Last article here is from a site. I'm going to put an infographic in on the site. It's from a site called Visual Capitalist, and this is entitled The Habits of the Wealthiest People. Now, this is based upon a book that I saw first a year or so ago. Uh, the author, I'd love to read his book. I haven't read it. He was a financial planner. Let's see here. Uh, he was a financial planner that wrote a book on, uh, interviewed a bunch of rich people and a bunch of poor people, and he was trying to figure out what worked and what didn't. And so he wrote this book on the habits of the wealthy. And uh, Thomas Corley and his study of the daily habits of 233 wealthy and 128 poor people. Uh, he gained a lot of notoriety uh, when he was able to get when he got featured on the Dave Ramsey show, which was awesome for him because that this fits in very well with what Dave Ramsey teaches on his show is that wealth comes as a result of habits. And so he got featured on that show and it really, really was a huge boon to him as far as his book sales. I haven't read his book yet. I would like to and like to interview him. Uh, I'm interested to know if this is actually statistically accurate. My, my statistics, uh, my statistical knowledge is limited to the point where I don't know if this is statistically accurate or not, but I do think it's an interesting uh, interest. It's intuitively accurate based upon my experience, but that doesn't make it correct. So he's talking about what is the wealthy and what do wealthy people and what do poor people do? And and I think I stole this from Dave Ramsey. He says that if you do what wealthy people do, you get wealthy, and if you do what poor people do, you get poor. And I I think that's awesome. I think it's true. Uh, I would take a little bit wider than what Dave says, but hey, good for him. He can do it. Uh, he's got a much bigger footprint, and so he's got more experience than I do working with you know his wealthy friends. So maybe, maybe, maybe he's 100% right and I'm wrong. But first of all, how do they define wealthy in this study? Wealthy is defined as earning at least $160,000 annually and holding at least $3.2 million in assets. And then poor is defined as an income under $30,000 per year and less than $5,000 in assets. And so some of the habits of the rich, I'm just going to cherry pick a few here, they have a routine. So 81% of the rich versus 9% of the poor maintain a to-do list. 44% of the rich versus 3% of the poor wake up three plus hours before work. 63% of the rich versus 5% of the poor listen to audiobooks during their commute. I'm going to hope that they'll start listening to my show because uh, it's free and they can just stream it over line, or online and, and hopefully we can help some people that are poor to, to get wealthy. Uh, 79% of the rich versus 16% of the poor network five-plus hours or more each month. That one is easy to jump on from the perspective of ability. If you talk to a minimum wage person and say, well, the person's working all the time. It's probably true, but uh, probably true. It's very challenging situations, but that's an interesting one. And then 88% of the rich versus 2% of the poor read 30-plus minutes or more each day. 86% of the rich versus 26% of the poor love to read. I thought that was interesting. These are interesting statistics. And what it sees, it times ties together the theme of the show, is that skills and knowledge lead to earning ability. So if you want to have earning ability and wealth, don't focus, focus on first saying, well, how can I go out and get these, uh, the, you know, how can I go out and find the job? Focus on building the skills and then find the job that is, health, that is appropriate for that. Uh, healthy, the rich are healthy. They exercise aerobically four days a week, and 76% of the wealthy exercise aerobically, and 23% of the poor. That one's interesting. And then the junk food calories, uh, 
the poor have a higher consumption of junk food calories versus the wealthy, although visually on the infographic it's not that sim- similar. Um, the television habits, big difference in television habits, and this is the one where where uh, I'm glad that he has television habits on here versus time reading and networking because the complaint that would be made by people who are advocates for minimum wage laws and things like that is, look, it's not possible to work at minimum wage down at your local fast food restaurant and have enough time after supporting your family to, uh, you know, to read, to learn these things. Well, uh, it looks like here, what is this, 24% of the poor, excuse me, 24 uh, sixty looks like about sixty five percent of the wealthy versus twenty four percent of the poor uh, watch one or less hour of TV every day. So sixty five percent of the wealthy watch less than one hour of TV, whereas only twenty four percent of the poor watch less than one hour per, of t- TV. Seventy six percent of the poor watch reality TV versus this looks like five or ten percent watch wealthy TV. And then goal setting: sixty seven percent of the rich write down their goals. Eleven seventeen percent of the poor. Uh, versus 17% of the poor. 80% of the rich focus on accomplishing a specific goal versus 12% of the poor. 86% of the rich believe in lifelong educational and self-improvement versus 5% of the poor. 84% of the rich believe good habits create opportunity versus 4% of the poor. And 76% of the rich believe bad habits have a negative impact versus 9% of the poor. And then he goes through some some other numbers here. So I commend this infographic to you. I think it's well done, and I would like to read this book and report back to you on the, uh, to you on the future. It's one of those things that seems intuitively true. I question a little bit if it's statistically accurate with a sample set of 233 wealthy and 128 poor people, and I don't know what his methodology was. Uh, that would be kind of the weak point. I'd love to see someone. I don't know. I'll have to check it out, and if any of you statisticians would have any knowledge on whether it's accurate or not, I would love to know that. So... That's it for today's show, except I'm going to wrap up with a poem. And this is a poem that I first read a couple months ago when I was reading a blog called The Rebel Heart. And Rebel, The Rebel Heart was a blog that, that or a, uh, was a uh, name of a sailboat for this young couple that had worked really hard and had bought a sailboat. And uh, that had, that had bought a, they'd bought a sailboat and they were planning to, to save all their money and they were planning to sail around the world for basically the indefinite future. And on their, they had, they were doing in the middle of their Pacific crossing. In the middle of the Pacific crossing, they ran into substantial uh, problems with a big storm and the the big thing with their baby being sick. And they were way offshore, and they had a sick baby, and they weren't able to finish their voyage. And they wound up having to be rescued at sea. They had to scuttle their boat. And basically, it's a really inspiring and uh, it's both inspiring and a just difficult story to kind of think about starting all over again. So check out their blog. I'll put a link in the show notes. I think it's therebelheart.com. And then the, I think the husband's name is Eric and the wife's name is Charlotte. And I think they do it. I've enjoyed reading some of their articles over the years. But he posted a, a link to a poem, and I hadn't read it. And I read it a, couple, a month or two ago, I think, when he posted it. And I've just been thinking about it. I referred to it a few times, and I'd like to leave it with you today. And the poem is called If by Rudyard Kipling. And to me, it just ties together this, this, this show, uh, at least for today, and kind of what's on my mind. That Meaning that there are many things that can happen, and, and you can choose your response to them. And I'm inspired by how this man is, is having to rebuild his dream with nothing. Uh, lost all of their physical possessions were on the boat, so all their physical possessions, their major investment into the boat to provide for their 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 living situation. Now that's gone. I, I hope they still have some other money saved that they were planning to to have as well. But basically, starting over from with nothing, but starting over and rebuilding again with nothing except the family, the love, 
and the love of, of his family, his children, thankfully everyone survived, and the skills that he, and, and knowledge that he's developed. And there's no doubt in my mind that this family will be able to hit their dreams and goals again. And there's no doubt in my mind that they will be able to do so uh, faster than they did the first time based upon their, their past knowledge. And I think they will enjoy the process getting there. But let me read this poem, and with this we'll be done. If by Rudyard Kipling. If you can keep your head when all about you are losing theirs and blaming it on you. If you can trust yourself when all men doubt you, but make allowance for their doubting too. If you can wait and not be tired by waiting, or being lied about, don't deal in lies, or being hated, don't give way to hating, and yet don't look too good, nor talk too wise. If you can dream and not make dreams your master, if you can think and not make thoughts your aim, if you can meet with triumph and disaster and treat those two impostors just the same, if you can bear to hear the truth you've spoken, twisted by knaves to make a trap for fools, or watch the things you gave your life to broken and stoop and build them up with worn-out tools, if you can make one heap of all your winnings and risk it on one turn of pitch and toss and lose and start again at your beginnings, and never breathe a word about your loss. If you can force your heart and nerve and sinew to serve your, your turn long after they are gone, and so hold on when there is nothing in you except the will which says to them, hold on. If you can talk with crowds and keep your virtue, or walk with kings nor lose the common touch, if neither foes nor loving friends can hurt you, if all men count with you, but none too much. If you can fill the unforgiving minute with sixty seconds worth of distance run, yours is the earth and everything that's in it, and which is more, you'll be a man, my son. As we begin our week here on a Monday, I hope that you would be able to implement the words of that poem and some of the ideas that we've talked about. And I hope that each day of this week that you will be able to enjoy the love of your family and of your friends, that you will be able to enhance your own happiness, that you will make measurable progress towards your goals. I heard a definition years ago that happiness is the progressive realization of a worthy ideal. I can't remember who that originated with, but I hope you'll make measurable progress towards your goals. And I hope that some of the ideas that I've shared today have been helpful for you in some way. That's it for today's show for Monday, July 21, 2014. All of the resources for today are at RadicalPersonalFinance.com slash 24. Tomorrow, I will be bringing you an interview with Jacob Lund Fisker, author of the Early Retirement, of Early Retirement Extreme, the book and the blog. We recorded that on Saturday, and I will be actually be traveling for the next couple of days, so that will be released on Tuesday. On Wednesday, I plan to bring you another show on the... Uh, this one is going to be on the statement of cash flows, like we did the statement of financial condition last week and talk about how powerful the statement of cash flows is once you actually understand it and understand how it works. Not sure what's coming on Thursday and Friday. Oh, Friday will be a Q&A show. I'm trying to get SpeakPipe set up so you can call in some questions. I uh, haven't gotten the chance to do that. and will be traveling later today, so maybe tomorrow I will be able to get that going for you. But I hope that this show was helpful for you. Uh, please, thank you for those of you who have been leaving reviews. Please consider, if you haven't, uh, just that's what I ask of you, if this information has 
been at all helpful, I would be indebted to you if you would leave a review for us on iTunes and subscribe. Subscribe and leave a review on iTunes. That will help us to get into the new and noteworthy section of the business section, which is be, which would be awesome. We're featured there in the investing section, and I hope that will help spread the rational message of the Radical Personal Finance podcast, which is a rational approach to financial planning and goal setting and goal achievement. May you have an awesome week. Talk to you soon. You can fill the unforgiving minute with 60 seconds worth of distance run. Yours is the earth and everything that's in it. And, which is more, you'll be a man, my son.